0: my fellow low To good evening welcome to the symposium today it's just going to be me and you and uh, this is uh, f- for our first time but i have no interlocutor today but i think that there are some things that i have to discuss with you directly now i have taken part in several discussions about uh, classical liberalism and the concept of freedom and uh, i think that there are some things that I have been uh, saying that uh, maybe haven't been understood, or at least haven't been understood sufficiently. So, one thing, uh, two things happened, actually. One is that uh, I saw a comment on Symposium 39, I think it was David Day, who told me that, uh, Stelios, you are talking about uh, your concept of freedom, and, uh, but you haven't actually explained it that well or that much. I think uh, that's correct because a lot of the times when we are trying to talk about things, we, are, uh, we, we tend to think that people have sort of an access to our consciousness, an intimate relation to it that we have, but this is false, and it frequently happens. So I think that it is a good idea if I was a bit more explicit. And the other thing that happened was that I was watching with my fiancé, Contemplations 147, and uh, about a half an hour in the conversation, she told me that I don't understand what all of you are talking about. There are so, so many isms that are thrown here or there, and uh, there, there isn't uh, much time for me to understand, and I cannot follow well. I think that basically it is a good idea if I take some time and actually tell you what I think freedom is and actually show you the literature or some bits of the literature on freedom. Now, what what's, What you need to know is that, for instance, topics like the freedom of the will, they're not topics that are incredibly easy to digest or incredibly easy to go to. Uh, The notion of free will and discussion as to whether our will is free or not span for about 23 centuries. So, for instance, I had to get intimately... uh, I had to read uh, literature over around 23 centuries for my PhD on free will. And as I was doing this, I thought that sadly, or you could say that sometimes it's also for, for, for better, the concept of free will is understood very differently by different thinkers. And uh, we all have the tendency to think that terms mean one thing and one thing only because it is expedient to think and proceed under this assumption. But I think that it is ultimately false. Whether for better or worse, I don't know, but it is definitely a false assumption. So I think today we should talk about the idea of freedom and what freedom means. And I have, I know that this is going to be a sort of difficult discussion. For this reason, I have a presentation that I will share with you. And every time I think you should uh, want to pause, pause by all means, pause the video and watch at the slides that I have with you. Philosophy is a difficult endeavor. I like to portray it as learning to navigate with the vessel of the mind across an infinite sea, the sea of ideas. Ultimately speaking, it is endless. But you could say that life is endless as well. The universe is far big enough for us and most of it we cannot even comprehend. And uh, there are good arguments to the effect that we will never be able to comprehend all of it. because. We're limited beings and our cognitive capacities are limited despite all the wonders of uh, natural science, philosophy, religion, all of the knowledge we have accumulated from all such disciplines. So, by all means, today I want to talk to you about the idea of freedom and what it means. So, we're going to have a structure in our discussion or my presentation. I hope you find this useful. So, we're going to have roughly three sections. The one is the semantic of freedom. We are going to talk about what the concept of freedom means. And uh, we are going to ask two major questions. First of all, what does freedom mean? And also, is it one thing or are there many kinds of freedom? This is a major discussion that is being had. I haven't made up my mind yet, but I want to show you both sides of the issue. The second section is the politics of freedom, where I'll talk to you about one of my favorite classical liberals. Benjamin Constant who was a Swiss Protestant and he was actually a very active person in politics he was one of Napoleon's main opponents in France so by all means you can't say that he was just a abstract theorizer who had no relation with reality and just conceived of abstract ideas and was talking about them all the time and we are going to talk also about some of the th- some of the ideas involved in political liberalism. Obviously, this is an umbrella term, like all the terms we're using, like liberalism, conservatism, Marxism, all of these terms are umbrella terms. And for also each of the individual terms that feature in them, like for instance, the notion of equality, the notion of um, liberty, the notion of let's say um, reason, even reason, they have an autonomy, they have all sorts of interpretations. So by all means, if, if you start looking at this, you will re- be reminded of the image of the fractals, where you try to pinpoint an end into it, but you see no end. It can go down infinitely. That is why I also said that philosophy is something like learning to navigate with a sea of the mind across the infinite ocean of ideas. And I think that's a good way of putting it. So it's not so much about the ultimate answers, but it's about learning how to live as a human being with a mind, with a mind that ponders the, the basic questions that basically all human beings ask. Now, the third one will be, the third section of our talk, will, will concern the value of freedom. And we will examine four views as to why freedom is valuable. There are many more, but I'm, I'm going to give you just these. And I'm gonna end with one of my favorite poems by uh, called Invictus by William Henley. And I think that it's a very nice way to to end our discussion. So let us begin with the semantics of freedom. So I want to say that um, language has always been a concern of philosophers. But in the 20th century it became a center stage concern and uh, there was a lot of effort put into the examination of language and you could also say ordinary language. There was a trend that uh, said we should emphasize not just on abstract ideas but on the concrete world within which human beings live and they use ideas for things such as communication and even personal thinking. But the the focus is on the concrete culture that people engage in, the practices they engage in and and within this culture, the kind of language that we use. Now, one of the major figures in the 20th century uh, philosophical scene was Ludwig Wittgenstein. He was born in 1889 and died in 1951, and he was an incredibly influential figure. A lot of people say that his thought was deeply impenetrable, because he was a philosopher's philosopher. Someone like Hegel, you could say. In order to understand Hegel, you need to have actually read the history of philosophy. You need to have become intimately aware with the philosophers about which Hegel is writing, as well as intimately aware of key historical facts. Wittgenstein was a bit more methodologically driven. He didn't talk so much about grand theories of history. He was much more focused on the contingent aspects of things. And he did not allow himself to be drawn into such careless generalizations. I think we could safely say something like that. So he was not interested in grand narratives. But what he was interested in was ordinary language and how people spoke. Towards the end of his career, or you could say the, the middle and end of his career, his more mature work. he gave us a sort of slogan. Now, of course, this is going to be garden variety Wittgensteinianism that I'm going to say, but he said something like when you are actually inquiring about the meaning of a term, you should not focus on the abstract ways people uh, con- on abstract conceptualizations, you should not focus on abstract conceptualizations, but you should focus on how they use it, on how the concept is used within particular practices in particular cultures. So again, you see the focus not in the abstract realm of ideas, but in the concrete world of here and now. So, I want, us to ex- I want you to pause a bit and think of some ways and some sentences in which the notion of freedom features. Um, you could just pause the video and just write some sentences down. And you will see that we use it in all sorts of ways. Let me just say that, for instance, we have several uses. One major distinction is the, that between normative and descriptive uses. So, for instance, let us talk about the concept of a mother, for instance. This is an interesting example. We could say that we could have these two sentences. First of all, you could say, Jill is the mother of Scott. This is one sentence. The next sentence is, Jill abandoned Scott. No mother would do that. Now, in both sentences, we we seem to be talking about the same concept, the concept of motherhood. But if you look at how we use the concept, we're actually talking about something different. In the first case, the descriptive case, we're talking about a biological mother. In the second case, we're talking about something that is a bit more ethical. We're saying that no mother would act like that, which means that we are using it in a sort of normative sense. We are saying that in order to qualify as a mother, you need to perform some actions with respect to your children. If you don't do this, you're not acting like a mother. Acting like a mother in the second case is not like giving birth. It's, it has to do with how you deal with your children. So this is one major distinction that is really interesting for us to notice. A lot of the times, the notion, this applies for the notion of freedom as well. We're talking about freedom, some people talk about freedom in a descriptive sense, where we're saying this person is free to do x, y, or z. And another person would say, well, doing x, y, and z is not real freedom. So this is a major distinction that we need to bear in mind. So I, had, I took the liberty to show you some sentences where this the notion of freedom features. So one is, let's say, Zorba the Greek. In uh, the novel by Kazadzakis, he says, I hope for nothing, I fear nothing, I am free. That's one sentence in which the notion of freedom is used. Sentence number two, I'm not a slave anymore, I am free. Sentence number three, I engaged in that activity freely, could say voluntarily. Sentence number four, you're free to leave, no one is is stopping you. Um, Sentence number five, you were free to speak up, why didn't you? Uh, Sentence number six, my decision was free. Sentence number seven, you're not free to steal. Sentence number eight, freedom is not a license, it is not harming yourself. Now, if you will see, if you examine how the notion of freedom is used, you will see some differences. Now, a lot of the time these differences are unnoticed. Why? Because we are so much preoccupied with the task at hand that we miss all the nuances of what we're doing. Now, a lot of the time people are bored when I bring this up, but there's no alternative. If you actually want to understand how the concept of freedom is used, it doesn't matter if you, it doesn't matter if we don't have time, there's no alternative, there's no shortcut. So, let me just say here, in sentence one, freedom is used to capture something distinctive like a freedom as an inner state of the soul. We could say that this is not something uh, unique in Western culture. For instance, we could say that the concept of Nirvana is such a state of the mind or such a state of the soul. And it is closely connected with freedom from the cycle of rebirth and, and death. So we frequently used the notion of freedom to capture something like inner freedom, something like the ataraxia that Stoics and Epicureans were talking about. And in that sense, we could be saying that someone can be free even if one is a slave. Because being a slave is compatible with being in that state of mind where you, for instance, hope for nothing or fear for nothing. Now, A lot of the time, some people have criticized this notion as as freedom enough. I think that it is a kind of freedom, it is not the only one, and uh, it is sort of the last resort. I think it is a worthy aim for people who are, for instance, incarcerated, and for people who don't think that it is likely to break free. Now, sentence two, I am not a slave anymore, I am free. Here, freedom is used to capture something like a social status. It's a completely different thing from the inner state of the mind. You could not be in a state of nirvana and have the social status of being a free citizen. Sentence number three, I engaged in that activity freely, voluntarily. Here, freedom captures the power to act. It's something like the power of action. It's also different from what we did before. Sentence number two, you're free to leave, no one is stopping you. Here, freedom is understood as the absence of obstacles, absence of external obstacles, you could say. Sentence number five, you were free to speak up, why didn't you? Here, freedom is referring either to external obstacles or it could refer to a power that we have but we didn't exercise. Because a lot of the time we do have powers that we don't exercise. Um, Sentence number six. My decision was free. Here, freedom is supposed to be a property of the choice. The property of a choice in virtue of which that choice was free. When that property is absent, we could say that my choice was not free. For instance, I was held at gunpoint. Um, Sentence number seven. You're not free to steal. Here, freedom is used as a legal right or a legal permission. Sentence number eight, freedom is not license, it is not harming yourself. Here, freedom is used in a very normative sense, it is freedom worth wanting. Now, if you look, you could say that in some cases we could fuse some of them, such as freedom as the power to act voluntarily, and freedom as the power that remained unexercised, but the point is that we are using freedom in all sorts of ways to capture all sorts of things across many contexts, across political, civil, legal, political, even psychological context. It is very important to bear in mind that this is a difficult thing, this is a difficult um, endeavor and inquiry, and I think there is some merit in being a bit scholastic, even if it doesn't sound particularly sexy or particularly uplifting. So, let us move forward. Now, uh, there are I want to codify some expressions here and give you just four four kinds of freedom or four things that we try to capture when we are talking about freedom. One is freedom as a power that we have. For instance, it's the freedom of will. Thomas Reed is one of my favorite philosophers, uh, a major figure of the Scottish Enlightenment and an advocate of the School of Common Sense. He said in the Essays on the Active Powers of Man, I think this is uh, essay number three, where he says, by liberty of the will, I understand uh, the man's power over the determination of one's will, which means something like the ability to engage, to choose this or that. So we could talk about freedom as a power in this respect, whether we try to capture the power to will freely or voluntarily, the power to choose, the power to act, Also, the power to act autonomously. You will see towards the end, we will talk extensively about autonomy. Now, freedom, it can be also an achievement, where we could say it's like the state of nirvana, it's the state of ataraxia, or a Zorba, state of mind. It could also be understood as autonomy, and more of that will come to the end. Freedom as a civil or legal right, such as when we are talking about freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religious belief, freedom of economic activity. And we can also talk about freedom as a political right, which is the right to participate in politics. And some people say that it is also the right to enjoy a sphere of individual rights. Now, there are all sorts of discussions about this, and we will touch upon them. Now, uh, let us talk a bit about the semantics of freedom. Because you will see that a lot of the times, there is a major question. The question is, when we're trying to talk about freedom, do we talk about one concept in all circumstances, or do we talk about kinds of freedom? So, when we're talking about kinds of freedom, we're saying that uh, there are irreducibly different kinds of freedom. You can't boil one down to the other. And there is a tendency to use many kinds of freedom and refer to many kinds of freedom, but there are also some powerful arguments to the effect that freedom is just one concept, a triadic relation, and uh, we can use this concept to capture basically all, all of the things we want to say when we're talking about freedom in all sorts of difficult and different contexts. Now. Personally, I haven't made up my mind yet, but because you have heard me talking about kinds of freedom before, I want to introduce to you the other side of the, the argument. And I will, I will quote extensively by, well not extensively, by Gerald McCallum. Let me just say that uh, Gerald, Macha- Gerald McCallum was a philosopher who wrote in 1967 a very influential paper. It was called Negative and Positive Freedom, and he was talking about social and political freedom. And he's someone who was claiming that the people who are talking about different kinds of freedom are actually harming the debate. He, ha- he definitely had in mind Isaiah Berlin, who I think is a, is a major thinker and an incredibly gifted writer, and whose thoughts should be taken much more seriously than it is especially in academia. Now, I must say again, I don't know if McCallum is right on this one, but even if he is, it doesn't take away a lot of the power of Berlin's points. Now, let me just say what McCallum would say uh, when he argues that the concept of freedom is basically a singular concept. So, I quote from his essay, whenever the freedom of some agent or agents is in question, it is always freedom from some constraint or restriction on interference with, or barrier to doing, not doing, becoming, or not becoming something. Such freedom is thus always of something, an agent or agents, from something, to do, not do, become, or not become something. It is a triadic relation. Taking the format X is or is not, free from Y, to do, not to do, become, not become, Z. X ranges over agents, Y ranges over such preventing conditions as constraints, restrictions, interferences and barriers, and Z ranges over actions or conditions of character or circumstance. When reference to one of these three terms is missing in such a discussion of freedom, it should be only because the reference is thought to be understood from the context of the discussion. So, what McCallum is saying is that we shouldn't talk about different kinds of freedom. Freedom is one thing, it is always a triadic relation between a person, the bearer of freedom, and potential obstacles, as well as potential actions. It is always the case that when we're talking about someone being free, and remember, McCallum is talking in the social slash political sense, someone is free from something to do something or become something else. And when freedom is missing, we are saying that someone is not free from something to do something or become something. So, I think that this is a very interesting argument. McCallum is saying that there are some problematic cases or cases that seem problematic. So, for instance, he says cases where agents are not mentioned, like, for instance, where we're talking about free beer. Cases where it is not clear what corresponds to the second term, like freedom of choice freedom to choose as I please, or cases where it is not clear what corresponds to the third term. Example given, freedom from hunger, fear, freedom from poverty, freedom from disease, etc. Now what McCallum is doing is anticipating possible objections to his views. He's saying that what would people who are going to argue against me say in order to dismiss my position? They would bring cases like the aforementioned. And he tries to respond by trying to show how a lot of these terms, they are actually elliptical of another sentence, a more complex one, that actually involves reference to freedom as a triadic relation. So, for instance, when he was talking about free beer, I will give you just one example here. He was saying that when we're talking about free beer, what we mean is that people are free from the traditional constraints of the market, in order to enjoy and dispose beer. That's a good good thing. Um, Now, another case where he's talking about cases where it is not clear what corresponds to the second term, like freedom of choice. What he would say here, that this is basically a short way of saying, it is a sort of linguistic shortcut to saying, well, there is a person who is free to choose or not choose something, and is also free from obstacles that would prevent him or her from making the relevant choice. And the same happens to freedom to do as I please. Now, let us talk a bit about the semantics of freedom now. So McCallum thinks that basically his triadic relation his conception of freedom as a triadic relation is really strong enough. And he thinks that basically it is actually going to help us a lot navigate across the political discussion. What he says is the following. If we are to manage these divergences sensibly, we must focus our attention on each of these variables and on differences in views as to their ranges. Until, Until we do this, we will not see clearly the issues which have in fact been raised and thus will not see clearly what needs arguing. In view of this need, it is both clumsy and misleading to try to sort our writers as adherents of this or that kind or concept of freedom. We would be far better off to insist that they all have the same concept of freedom as a triadic relation, thus putting ourselves in a position to notice how and inquire fruitfully into why they identify differently what can serve as agent, preventing condition and action or state character, vis-à-vis issues of freedom. But he does not think that this is the final say over the matter. What he says, unfortunately, even if this basis of distinction between positive and negative freedom as do distinct kinds of or concepts of freedom is shown to collapse, one has not gotten very far in understanding the issues separating those philosophers or ideologies commonly said to utilize one or the other of them. One has, however, dissipated one of the main confusions blocking understanding of these issues. In recognizing that freedom is always both freedom from something and freedom to do or become something, one is provided with a means of making sense out of interminable and poorly defined controversies concerning, for example, when a person really is free, why freedom is important and on what its importance depends. I think that this is the final slide we're going to talk about when we're talking about the semantics of freedom. Um, some people say that there are many kinds of freedom, that they are different, irreducibly different. You can not boil one to the other. There's nothing common across all the, there's nothing common that all kinds of freedom uh, contain. But uh, someone like McCallum would say, no, when we are talking about freedom, we are talking about the same thing. We do mean the same thing. To watch the full video, please become a Premium Member at LotusEaters.com